good morning. Good morning, women of hope in this room. Good morning to those who are listening on the podcast. My name is Sarah John, and I'm really excited to be with y'all this morning and to share how the Lord's been really tender with me as I've been sitting in this passage and looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, If you don't know me, I'm on the Women's Shepherding Team. I am the Children's Ministry Coordinator at our South End location. There's my director back there. Um, I am married to a man named Phil. We've been married for 16 years. We have two boys, Anderson, who's 11, and Gabriel, who is 9. And much like Laura last week, there's a lot of boy things going on at my house. Lots of wrestling and paper airplanes and Legos and Nerf darts everywhere. Um, But it's a lot of fun. And for me, when I'm ready to escape all of that boy life, I love to dive into creating anything, anything that allows me to be artsy. So clay earrings and taking abstract art classes has been a real place of rest for me to dive into that. So before we get into the Lord's Prayer, I kind of want to take a look at where we've been for the last four weeks. So far, we've seen the first four Beatitudes build on each other as they invite us to a life of flourishing in our personal relationship with Jesus. These statements have called us to become a community that demonstrates humble brokenness, honest lament over sin, wise strength as we yield to our Father's will, and faithfully waiting for a righteousness that only Jesus can satisfy. And today, we're gonna take a break from those Beatitudes. We're gonna take a look specifically at the Lord's Prayer, which is in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus pauses in the middle of the sermon to teach us how we should pray. And then next week, the amazing Stephanie Hamm will continue with looking at the fifth beatitude and will shift to talking about relational flourishing within our community and in the world. So as we've done for the last several weeks, let's start off by quieting our hearts, trying to block out everything that you've come in with, and just taking a minute and sitting in silence before we start our Lectio. So again, our passage is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. I'm going to be reading from the CSB version. And the first time I read through this, I want you to think about what words or phrases jump out to you. What grabs your attention? And that may be a little harder because a lot of us are very familiar with this prayer. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
this time, I want you to imagine yourself in God's kingdom. Put yourself there. What role do you have in the kingdom? What does your day look like as part of the kingdom? Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the last time I read it, I want you to think about what does this passage tell me about Jesus and his upside-down kingdom? Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray. Father, a lot of us have had these verses memorized for a long time. And it may be a little harder to pull out new meaning. But Lord, I pray that you would breathe new life into these verses as we study them today. I pray that you would pull out parts that you want us to sit with, truths that you want us to remember. Thank you for this guide. Thank you for what is true about you as we go through these verses. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Last week, Laura reminded us of the power of prayer and yet the intimacy that our Heavenly Father desires to have with us through prayer. And my hope is that that discussion will continue as we go through and look out line by line. What does he want us to glean from this prayer? What is he saying to us as his children, as his daughters, about who he is and the relationship that he desires to have with us? I don't know about y'all, but my Lord's Prayer experience has gone way back. I believe I had it memorized when I was in the second grade because I went to a little Lutheran school up in Illinois, and every morning we had chapel. So every morning we had to line up, walk out as a class into chapel, and then before the speaker started speaking, we all stood up in our pews, and recited the Lord's Prayer. 
And I remember feeling so accomplished and so spiritual, and I'd look around to see if my friends were actually saying the correct words. <laughs> and I probably had absolutely no idea what I was saying, but man, was I cool and was I accomplished that I knew every single word, or what I thought was every single word of the Lord's Prayer. And it was probably similar to when young kids learn the ABCs and they kind of mesh some of the letters together, but they think they're saying it right. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, elemental P. And it's like, elemental P is not a letter. But that was probably very similar to my experience. And if I'm being very honest with you, I'm not going to do the math of how many years later, but in sitting in this passage for the last month and a half, there have been things that the Lord has touched on and has pulled out for me that I'm thinking, Lord, I never realized that. I've probably said this prayer hundreds and hundreds of times, and I've never realized that that's what that meant. Like, hallowed be thy name, spit that off all the time. But do I really sit on, what does that mean if I'm saying that? So I'm hoping that if you're anything like me, that in going through this, the Lord in his tenderness will pull out some new things for you, will breathe new life into what does he want us to see in the Lord's Prayer? And please don't hear me say that this is the only way to pray. This is absolutely not the only way to pray. But I do think that he gave us this prayer as a wonderful tool to use when going to him. That in praying in this way, we're reminded of so many things that are true about who he is, how he feels about us, and the role that he desires to play in, in our lives. And we know that prayers don't have to be lofty. They can be simple and direct because he already knows our wants, our needs, our desires before we ever ask them, before we ever vocalize them. Now, if you want to study up on prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Tim Keller is the first place you go. And man, he had a lot of information, a lot of sermons. And so I kind of dove into him for the first couple of weeks of looking at this passage. But one thing I really loved that he talked about and helped me kind of orient my mind around prayer too, is he talks about having two different relationships with prayer. He said, oftentimes, and we can go in and out of these two different relationships, depending on what season we're in, but we can adopt a business relationship with prayer. Prayer becomes transactional. It's an exchange. Lord, I've been faithful. And we may not actually say these words, but we're kind of feeling parts of it. I've done all these things. I've come to you. This is a good thing that I'm asking for. I need you to uphold your end. I need you to come through in this way. Some of us feel this way when praying to God. I've been faithful, why don't you answer my prayers? Or this feels uncomfortable to say, but we sometimes live like this. Lord, I deserve this. I'm doing the right things. I'm faithful to you. This is a good thing I'm asking for. Why do you feel silent? Or I'll keep coming to you as long as I feel your nearness. I'll keep coming to you and asking you for things, but Lord, it's going to get real frustrating if I don't feel your nearness, if I don't feel like you're hearing me, if I don't see any movement. It's conditional. And then he talks about the other type of prayer being familial prayer or family prayer, where it's a commitment no matter what we feel and what we see happening. I trust you even when I don't always hear from you. I know you are God and you love me simply because I'm your child not because of how you answer my prayers. And one way to check what camp we fall into, if we fall into one of these camps, is do I become angry and anxious over unanswered prayers? How do I respond when I don't feel like he's acting? Do I trust in his timing even when I don't see my prayers being answered? 
So we've talked about a couple frameworks of prayer. Let's dive in by going line by line, breaking down the Lord's Prayer. So it starts out with our Father in heaven. We have access to the Father. We are coming to a loving Father in prayer. This prayer starts out with our Father for a reason. We have been adopted by him. We're not entering into this by our own doing. We can come to him as a child, totally reliant on our Father's love, and know that he hears us. It's a beautiful reminder at the very beginning of our true identity in him. It doesn't start out with our, our king, our master, O ruler of all, and it totally could because he is those things. But I love how intentionally he's like, nope, the first thing I want you to be reminded of is I am your father. You are my child. Last week, Laura painted a beautiful picture of this as she described curling up on her father's lap with her blankie, feeling all the safety and comfort that that brings feeling true sufficiency in him, that he really does provide all that we need. What does that look like for you? Coming to the Father, does it look like holding his hand? Does it look like curling up on his lap? The idea that it immediately puts you in a place of comfort. For some of us, this might be really easy to picture. This intimacy might be really easy to feel. Some of us had dads that did a really good job of modeling this. They were safe. They offered forgiveness. They were gentle with us. They modeled grace. And for other of us, this doesn't come that easy. For others, others of us, we had dads that weren't safe places. We had dads that weren't around a lot. We had dads that reacted a lot and didn't always ask for forgiveness. <coughs> No matter what type of father you had, none of us had a perfect earthly father. But we all are daughters of a perfect heavenly father, and he fills in all of those gaps that we didn't get here on earth. So I love that he starts off that way, and I don't think I've ever really realized the significance of that prayer starting off with our father in heaven. So the next line is your name be honored as holy. We go right into worshiping him. We start off by treating prayer as sacred. We are talking to a holy, sacred, and ultimate God, adoring him first before we ask for things. And it's not a performance. It's not, a, I'm going to praise you now because I'm about to start asking for things. So let's all remind everybody, and you too, Lord. Yep, you are holy. I see that. But it's a true just relaxing in our father's arms and saying, you are not only loving and safe and good, but you are also mighty and you can also handle and you are so much bigger than all the things that I'm about to come to you with. We're setting our hearts on what is true and important. And when we start out adoring and praising our father, it sets us up for everything else. I'm now more open to comfort after I've praised his name. I'm more able to forgive myself as I'm reminded that he forgave me first. It sets the entire heart, heart posture for the rest of the prayer. And it's a reminder that he is not only omnipotent, but that he loves us with the love of a perfect father and hears our prayers. Our next line is your kingdom come. This is our allegiance. The reign of God, the kingdom of God is here, and yet the day is yet to come when the kingdom will be established here on earth. 
And it's a reminder that I'm not praying my kingdom come, but man, do I live like it. Do I live like, Lord, sure, your kingdom come, that's the, that is the goal, but I'm going to do it here on earth. I'm going to do all the striving to try and meet all of the things, the goals that I have, the things that I am told in South Charlotte should be my goals, should bring sufficiency, should make me feel whole and complete, should satisfy. What are we longing for and what do we run after to obtain the American dream? I run after things that I think will help me feel full and satisfied, like the way my house looks, especially when I'm having a bunch of hope women coming over. I want it to look put together. I've convinced myself that the way my house looks and my beautiful dining room is gonna be a direct reflection on how I'm doing in life. How do, I mean, I strive for how do I look? What type of clothes am I wearing? How is my family perceived? Are my kids well-behaved? And none of these things are wrong to want. None of these things are wrong to want to put time and attention into. But I know personally, when I spend so much time and so much effort into pouring all of this energy and sometimes anxiety, if I'm being completely honest, into obtaining all of these things, I am so far from thinking your kingdom come. From living like, what is my role though in your kingdom, Lord? here on earth, because right now it's very me-focused and very concerned with how I'm appearing to other people. And I do, I think that it's going to fill me. I think it's gonna sustain me. I mean, I've, to be completely honest, felt some of that coming here today. About a week ago, I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm gonna wear. As if what I'm gonna wear or whether or not I've gone and gotten my grays covered is going to make me a better communicator to y'all. And the really funny thing is half of the people listening to this aren't even in this room. But yet I was very concerned with whether or not I was going to look put together and that surely that was just going to let the Lord's word flow through me. How short-sighted is my longing and striving, striving for what I'm told is life-giving in the media, in my city. I mean, South Charlotte is rough. Later in this prayer, we pray on earth as it is in heaven. So the idea of being future-oriented. My goal is not this world. My goal is to what is coming. Looking forward to the day when all sin and evil and sickness and everything opposed to God will be routed. His heavenly kingdom established here on earth and not being so short-sighted on what I'm striving for but looking to the bigger, looking to his kingdom coming, longing for his return, and not what I think will satisfy me today. And sometimes I have to be like, Lord, what, what is my role in your kingdom? What is my role on this earth right now? How do you want to use me? Because when I'm focused more on that, when I have eyes to see that day to day, I'm not as focused on how I can get ahead. I'm not as focused on keeping up with appearances and these things that are so fleeting. The next line, and y'all, this is a tough one, so brace yourselves. Your will be done. It's the S word, submission. And this is a tough one for me. I wanna pray this, and I do pray this, but I feel like a little kid, I kinda cross my fingers a little bit and stick it behind my back, like your will be done, and I believe that. But what if it includes some pain in the process? 
What if it includes loss? I have a lot of really godly women in my life right now that are dealing with a lot, Lord. And honestly, I don't know if I could handle them. What they're going through was as much grace and trust in you as they are. So can I pray for your will? But also, do I really trust that you are bigger than all of these things? That you're bigger than the loss? That you're bigger than the pain? That you're bigger than that process? We can trust him because he even prayed this prayer to his heavenly father in the Garden of Gethsemane before dying on the cross. Thy will be done. Elizabeth Elliot has a great quote. She says, I dethrone God in my heart when I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. Man, do I do that. I know that you're the king of all and that you know everything that happened in the past and you'll know everything in the future and that you're plan and your will and everything is so much greater than mine and I know just this tiny little slice of the pie right here but let me tell you how I think you should do things I mean who do I think I am Satan will try to get us to question and distrust the goodness of our father as we lean on our own understanding our own idea of how things should be done the only way we can completely trust him is if we believe that he really does love us as much as he says he does We have to believe that we cannot wear out this love. It doesn't ebb and flow. He will not change his mind, no matter how we respond to it. For me, part of trusting him and his plan is the reminder that he really does delight in me. And sometimes knowing all of my junk or being in a season of really struggling with something, that's hard to remember. Like you really, you know all of my innermost thoughts. You know not only all of the junk that I did in my past, but you know everything, every way I'm going to stumble in the future. And you still truly delight in me? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he loves to give you good things and that he delights in you? I was reminded of this two weeks ago. I was actually leaving Bible study, and y'all, those of you who live in this area, have a great little Harris Teeter right over here that I'd actually never been to. And I was like, you know what? I need to do some grocery shopping. Might as well hit this one up before I head to the other side of town. And I walked in, grabbed my cart, and I saw this huge Prime display. If you don't know what Prime is, it's a hydration drink. It's very popular amongst elementary students, especially um, boys, although I only have boys, so that's all I know. But my kids, as I mentioned earlier, are 9 and 11. They are at the stage where they are highly influenced by what other kids in their elementary school say is cool. And in our school, one of the coolest things you can bring in is a Prime drink. And if it's a rare flavor, kids will lose their minds. We went to go visit my kids and had lunch with them and brought them a bottle. And there were children coming up to our table asking us to write down the name of the store that we got it from so that they could take it back to their parents. It's a whole thing. And now before I get emails, I know it's mostly coconut water, but I know there's also some ingredients that a lot of people, it it may grow a six digit, like there are some concerns. So it's a very rare treat in my house. But I saw that display and it was two flavors that my kids had never tried before. And y'all, if you had walked by me, you would have seen this huge smile (laughs) come across my face. I was so excited. I could not get two bottles into my cart fast enough. 
I was probably skipping through Harris Teeter as I was gathering up the rest of my things, thinking about they are going to lose their minds. They're going to be so excited. I can't wait to give this to them. I was just overwhelmed with how exciting this whole process was going to be over these silly $2 drinks. Well, I got into my car, packed everything up, started driving. I thought, okay, what is this going to look like? They're going to get home from school. Well, no, let me back up. First, I'm going to go into the garage fridge, put the drinks in there, labels out so they see them right away. Then they're going to come home from school off the bus. They're going to start their homework. And then I'm going to be in the other room, and I'm just going to casually say, hey, boys, are you thirsty? <laughs> and of course they're going to say yes, because they're always hungry and thirsty. And so then I'm just going to say, why don't you go out to the garage fridge and see if there's anything in there? And then I kind of you know, trail behind them, and then they're going to open up the garage or the fridge door, and oh, mom, this is amazing. Thank you so much. And I was so excited, and I'm still grinning ear to ear as I'm driving home. And have you ever like reacted in a big way to something and then kind of realized how you're reacting and kind of laughed at yourself? Well, in that moment, I was like, oh, my word, you are so excited about these silly little drinks there. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? And then I was at a red light and I felt the Lord saying to me, Sarah, what you're feeling about giving your boys these silly drinks that may or may not be harmful for them <laughs> is not a drop in the bucket. Doesn't even compare to how I feel about giving you good things. And y'all, I just started weeping. And I brought up Kleenex today because I told you he's, he's been really, really tender with me through going through this process. But it just hit me like a ton of bricks of, wow, you love me so much more than I love these boys. And you love giving good things to your children. You love lavishing them with things that you know that they will, good things that you know that they will delight in just because you love to see smiles on your daughters and your sons. My dad used to say when I was little, Sarah, sometimes I think God stays up late at night just thinking of ways to surprise us with his goodness the next day. And I love that picture. So I cleaned myself up and got home and put the drinks facing out so they'd see him and waited for them to come home. I was so excited and sure enough, it played out exactly how I thought it was going to. They were thirsty. They walked into the garage, opened up the refrigerator door, and lost their minds. They are a lot like their mom. We have zero chill. We overreact to everything. And you heard all of what elementary school boys say, Bet, that's what's up. Let's go. Oh my gosh, mom, this is amazing. And they slipped, sipped on those two prime drinks for probably three days because they didn't want to, they did not want them to be done with. And then I think they washed out the bottles and they're now sitting up on their counter in their room. It's a whole obsession. Yeah. Yeah. But ever since then, it's been this beautiful reminder of how much he, he just delights in us. He loves to see our reactions. He loves giving us good things, whether that's I mean, sometimes I think it's even as small as, look at this parking spot that opened up right in the front. I don't think these things are coincidences. I think we serve a tender God, a tender Father that loves to show up in big and little ways. If you view your Father like that, does it make it easier for you to trust Him when you're in hard seasons, when He doesn't feel close? when you're wondering why he's not answering the good prayers that you're praying. 
Does it help to be reminded of how much he deeply, deeply loves you and loves to give you good things? Our next line is our daily bread. This is where we're petitioning. He is the bread of life and all we need. Do you believe that? Our speaker at the women's retreat a few weeks back, Wendy, talked a lot about daily bread. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. She talked about how the Lord instructed the Israelites to gather food daily, not once, not to store it up, but to get what they needed every single day because he provides daily nourishment to us. We are equipped daily. He is not an absentee father, but a father who gives us grace over and over and over and over again. I appreciate that she described it as sometimes he had to actually put the manna in her hand or directly in her mouth. I love that picture because there are times when I cannot gather it myself. I am so tired or so weak and literally need him to feed me his mercy and strength and renewal during hard seasons. Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And we talked about this earlier. Our Father knows what we need even before we ask it. This is hard for me because I want to gather by my own strength. And I even put a little spiritual label on it. I'm like, oh, no, Lord, you've gifted me me in this way. You've given me strength in this way. So let me go ahead and exhaust all of my own efforts. And then when I am just completely overwhelmed and my anxiety (laughs) is through the roof and I'm snapping at everyone, then I'll come to you and ask for that daily bread. It works out real well for me. I do. I fool myself into thinking that if I stay busy enough, I can get by. It often takes me exhausting all of my efforts before I'm crying out to him. And I do this in each new season of change or stress or seasons where I feel out of control. I did this in high school with broken relationships. Okay, here we go. I obviously need to better myself and work on myself. I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to talk to all the older wise women and I'm going to do all the things. And that's what's going to pull me out of this. In college, it was a really unhealthy relationship with food. Again, trying to grasp for control, dealing with anxiety. Do I go and lay before my heavenly father, grasping onto what he gives every day? No, I'm gonna read all the books. I'm gonna talk to all the wise older women. I'm gonna do all the things on my own strength to try and pull myself out of it. I'm in that season right now. I have a kid who's about to go into middle school and he is my tender one. If the younger one was going through, he'd be fine. He is rough and tumble. But my oldest is a super feeler and we're doing public school and that feels hard to me. And I'm listening to stories of friends who've had really rough rides with their kids going into middle school. And so what do I need to do with this? Ah, this feels like I'm anxious and I don't have any control over the situation. Oh Lord, I don't know what this is gonna look like. Let me go to all the open houses. Let me talk to all the administrators. Let me see how much I can control the situation so that I can give my son a good experience and somehow help him avoid. I mean, middle school's messy. But I decide that like, oh, I, I can make this better on my own. And with each new cycle, I feel like the Lord is saying, Sarah, stop. Just stop all the doing. I provide the things that you're searching for daily. Come to me. And only when I do that can I actually start to breathe. Does my anxiety lower? Do I stop trying to control everything and just trust what he has for me? And just doing the work and going to open houses, is that the wrong thing? Absolutely not. Like, do your homework. 
talk to good old women that have been through things before. And I think it's good for me to go and meet with principals, but when I am doing this at a high anxiety level of trying to create this environment that I think I can actually control, the Lord is so, I mean, I've pushed him completely out of the whole equation. And it's not until I slow down do I realize, one, Lord, you love him and me so much more than I can even imagine. And no matter what school he goes to, you will be with him in those hallways. I need to do a little homework and then back up and just trust that you have him. I am also a seven and I married a seven, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but part, if you don't know a whole lot about sevens, we are very future focused. Everything in the past is the past. So let's not waste any time going back there. Um, but I also, and this is getting real vulnerable here because this is not my proudest moment. I also really like to imagine in the future of all of the worst case scenarios with pretty much anything that stresses me out. That way I can kind of think about, okay, if this horrible thing happened, how would I feel? How would I react to that? That would be awful. And I can kind of feel a little bit of it in that moment and then feel like I'm more prepared for the worst case scenario in every situation. It's real fun. <laughs> um, but I was doing that the other day. I was looking outside in our backyard and we have these beautiful oak trees. And recently we had an arborist come in and he told us, you know, these, these trees are great. They're healthy right now, but they are kind of tending towards the end of their life cycle. So you may just wanna be looking at them every couple of years to make sure they remain healthy. And I was looking at these trees and I thought, oh, they provide so much shade. They're so pretty. They give us a nice little like blocker from looking directly into our neighbor's house behind us. They're gonna fall. Our backyard is gonna be so ugly. The trampoline's back here. It's gonna be directly in the sun. The kids aren't gonna be out here playing in it. And so I must've had this like horrified look on my face because Phil goes, what are you thinking about as you're staring out the window? And I was like, these trees, these four oak trees, they're gonna fall. It's gonna, I mean, do you know how long it takes to grow a tree? Like our backyard isn't gonna be back to what it is right now for the longest time. The kids will probably be out of the house at that point. And I was just spiraling. And he was like, Sarah, are they falling down? Are they gonna fall this week? And I realized I do this with so many areas of my life. And it's me trying to grasp it control and so now we have a saying in our house that gets said way too often, do not mourn trees that haven't fallen yet. <laughs> and I, y'all, I have passed it on to my kids. And my nine-year-old said it to my 11-year-old the other day. Anderson, you're mourning trees that haven't fallen yet. And he's like, I know. And I'm like, ay, ay, ay. But I do. I feel anxious over things that haven't even happened yet. And he says, Sarah, I, I give you, just as I have in the past, I give you everything you need every day. And I will continue to do that in the future, no matter what happens. The same daily bread that he's given me yesterday, he gives me today and he'll give me tomorrow. And when I can rest in that, I can slow down my anxious thoughts. I can focus on the more fun parts of being a seven and not getting so catastrophic with my thinking. All right, the next line is forgiveness. This is our confession. We talked about forgiveness earlier when we talked about how we need to recognize how we've been forgiven by God before we can truly forgive others. And we all know forgiveness isn't conditional. We can't say, I'll forgive you if you're really sorry. I'll forgive you if you promise you won't do this again. And thank goodness that's not what we had to say to our Heavenly Father. Because man, the amount of times that I've said, 
oh Lord, I need to ask for forgiveness of this. And I really, I feel like this is the last time. And then once again, and again, and again. Knowing that we have received the ultimate forgiveness, we are called to also release others from that damaged relationship and forgive. When we don't forgive someone, we're harboring pride. When we withhold forgiveness, we're acting out of bitterness and we're nurturing that pride. And I don't know if you feel that deeply, but my goodness, I am really good at harboring resentment and anger towards people. And it's amazing what it does to my heart when I can finally release that, what it, how it changes my relationship with the Lord, how it changes my relationship with even those that weren't involved in that dispute. It frees our hearts up to enter into flourishing when we can let go and forgive, being reminded of how we've been forgiven by our Father. And then our last line, lead us not into temptation. This is our deliverance. And I almost kind of wanted to ask uh, Jen if I could just skip over this because the whole temptation part feels a little sticky. But in studying this, it was very clear he does not tempt us. He's not a God who dangles something over here and says, you want this? You gonna go after it and then really need me? He does not tempt us. James 1.13 says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being <coughs> tempted by God for God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. And in my studies, I saw a lot about how the Greek word for test and tempt overlap. He tests us to refine us, but not to try to make us stumble. Like a good father, he promises that he will not test us beyond what we can handle. We also know that we serve a God who disciplines those who he loves. He wants us to grow. He doesn't want us to stay stagnant. He is developing and refining us as we encounter obstacles. And although it may not feel like it, this is a gift as we grow more into the image of our father and he will continue to grow us in the future. So I hope that that was helpful to kind of break down the Lord's Prayer. I hope that he was pulling some things out of that for you all to look at it a different way or even just to remind you all of how he feels about you and the Lord that he wants to be in your lives. But before we move on to our table groups, I do wanna hit one other point. Some of y'all may be like, Sarah, this is great. I'm glad that we can trust in this God. I'm glad he's, glad he's a loving God. I'm glad that you know his will is, he is in control. He knows more than I do, but he just feels silent. I'm asking him for good things. I'm asking him to heal my friend's illness. I'm asking him to restore relationships. I think these are things that, he, excuse me, he also wants, but he feels silent. He doesn't feel near. Sometimes he doesn't even feel real. I feel like I'm just throwing up words and I'm not getting anything back. Do we still hold on to what is true about God when he's silent? When his timeline doesn't seem to match up with ours, do we still believe that he loves us, that he delights in us, that he mourns with us? He's mourning over the things that we're bringing up and wrestling through with him, saying, Lord, heal this person, do this thing, heal this relationship. John 3.17 says, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Is that of comfort? If, this, if what you're praying for is not his will, are you okay with that? I love the promise that even when we go through seasons of 
not feeling his nearness, not feeling like he's answering, that he is not far. He promises that he will not leave us. John 14, 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I love that it doesn't say, I will not leave you as orphans, but seek me in this field and there you will find me. <laughs> no, he's going to come to us. It makes me think of a little kid who's just you know, running on the sidewalk and falls and looks up at his caregiver. And I just imagine the Lord scooping us up. He will come to us, even when our prayers aren't answered the way we desire for them to be answered. Do you trust that he delights in you? Do you trust that he delights and loves to give you good things? So I want to end on Psalms 38, 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a good and safe and loving father. I thank you that you are the mover of mountains, the king of all, that you can handle anything and everything. I thank you that you know our future, that you go before us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember all of these things, that we would feel your nearness, that we would feel your tender spirit, that we would feel your love, and that that would flow out of us. Thank you again for this time together. Amen. Amen.